Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hello there, space monkeys. Welcome to a short recording for cycling and alignment. I say that somewhat jokingly because I tend to not do short recordings. We'll give it a shot. I'm driving back from Czech level five, IMS five. That is the Czech Institute, the fifth and final year of my training there in his program, which is called the Czech Academy. And in that program, I learned so much stuff that it's pretty unbelievable, actually. Paul is basically a reading savant. He's read, he's read more books than probably the dozen smartest people I know past him. He's also had incredible life experiences in a great many things at the expert level. So he's probably an expert in 12 things. And by expert, I mean he's had personal experience that has brought him a high level of understanding and expertise. So you combine that with a mutant ability to digest books and years of experience working with people and healing people holistically, and you get Paul Check. Also, he grew up in the perfect cauldron to make himself, to really produce what he is, which is a person who's seen sort of both sides of the world from the perspective of we'll say elite sports and he's been in very violent environments. I won't expand on that. That's up to him to tell you his story. You can hear it all over the place if you're interested. And also he's had loving aspects to his environment. So he sort of had these polarities to play with and that combined with a big drive to express his dream has led him to become a powerful teacher. And many of the philosophies Paul teaches are congruent with my own. So this is why I was drawn to his work. He's not for everybody. He is a polarizing personality, which isn't surprising given his upbringing. And some people don't like to hear what he has to say or don't like his personality at all. 
to me, that's sort of incidental, really, to be honest. Um, he's got such powerful medicine and he's such a strong educator that I'll, it, to me, whether or not I have the same taste in something that he does or his method of delivery is sort of irrelevant to me. Uh, I can look past that. So that's a bit of explanation as to where I'm at. And one of the major topics of our course of IMS five is about myth. And you might be wondering what place that has on a cycling podcast. You also probably know by now that this is far more than a cycling podcast. Cycling I use as a metaphor for life in many ways. And it's also one of my favorite sports for sure. Might not even say my favorite one because I really love movement in many forms, but cycling's up there for sure. I mean, I'd have to say it's my favorite, I suppose. I did go to the Olympics for cycling, so there's that. But when we think about myth, what we're talking about is the story you tell yourself. One definition that Paul gives for myth is a story that tells itself. Myth is a story that tells itself. And it's also something that never happened and is happening all the time. So we might think of a fairy tale when we think of myth. And there can be some overlap there, right? Alice in Wonderland is, we might say, a fairy tale or a story, right? Or Little Red Riding Hood, something like this. Robin Hood, another example, right? A story could be argued that it's a fairy tale. Cinderella, another version, right? A lot of Disney, Cinder, uh, a lot of Disney going on in the world of, of fairy tales. When we're talking about psychology of an athlete or human, rather, we're thinking in terms of the story this person tells themselves. And this story is made up of largely the unconscious. And the unconscious is really about things that you have been programmed with. All humans are programmed. What do I mean by programmed? I mean that we are, our ego is developed by our caretakers. So human beings are a bit unique in the world of animals because a deer is born and it can stand up and individuate in a very short period of time after birth. I don't know what the exact timeline on that is, but if a deer can't walk around and eat on its own pretty quickly, it's gonna die, right? And there are other animals that have different timelines on this, like kittens, for example, will nurse off the, the mom cat for a while and they're not individuated. Individuated meaning that they can kind of behave like young adults. They have their passions and desires in cat world. Those amount to primal desires like killing prey, right? Chasing mice and sleeping, uh, primal drives and to procreate when they're of age to procreate, right? So animals individuate much more quickly than humans. Humans take a long time to individuate, you know, for the first nine, 12 months of life, we're completely dependent on our parents. And only then do we even begin to be capable of self locomotion that is walking around. But 
if you left a one-year-old or a two-year-old in a forest, it wouldn't be long before they died. They would walk off a cliff or get eaten or fall off some rocks or something, catch on fire in a forest fire because they wouldn't know any different. So we can see that humans take a long time to individuate. And as we individuate, we form our ego. And as we form our ego, we are imprinted upon by our caregivers. And those are usually our parents or our parental figures. So our parents imprint upon us. And this presents an interesting outcome because as we are imprinted upon, we receive programming from our parents. And each generation passes programming on to the subsequent generation. What do I mean by programming? Belief systems. And the most obvious example of that is religion, right? So if you grew up in a very religious house, your mom or your grandma or your father might say things like, God doesn't want you to do that. And they may say that from a very young age. And when you're two or three or four, you barely understand these words, but they become imprinted in your psyche. They become a program. And these programs left to run will run into adulthood. And then we overlay them with life. And sometimes life gives us trauma. So now we have programs that were passed down by our parents, some of which we may now in the rearview mirror judge as beneficial or good or positive, and some of which we may decide are not so constructive, not so positive, not so good. But many of them, here's the real challenge, we're not aware of. They're just built into us. They're built into our operating system. Like Macs have an operating system and Windows PCs have an operating system. And they run a little bit differently. And so someone who is spiritually awakened or on the path of awakening will begin to distill these programs. They will begin to examine these programs. They'll begin to sift through them and stir up the earth, as it were, to understand what the programs are and then make a critical evaluation, a conscious evaluation. Do I want to continue to enact this program or not? And religion, again, is the perfect example. You grew up in a house that went to church, a particular kind of church, whatever church that was, whether it was uh, Lutheran or Catholic or grew up in a Jewish household or whatever. And then you reach a certain age and you begin to wonder, is this something I believe in? Is this something I want to continue to practice? Is this type of worship something I want to remain in my life? And these are critical questions. Now here's the punchline. These programs dictate much of your behavior in life. And in that dictation, we understand that sometimes our behavior plays out in ways that don't necessarily lead to happiness or a positive outcome. And when the program is running on an unconscious level, then we can have conflict and friction. So as you run your program and then you experience life, 
sometimes we wonder, how did I get in this position? This can happen in lots of different scenarios. I'll give you an example. So maybe it can help illuminate the the point I'm trying to make. Someone is told from a young age that they need to have a good job. This is a value that the parents have, the father has, the mother has. They need to earn a living and they have to be a worthwhile person in society. And that family has a long tradition of, we can pick any example. I'm not picking on any one in particular. I'm just using, making up numbers to illustrate a point. So let's say that this family has a long lineage of lawyers, of litigious individuals. And so you reach the age of college decision time and you decide to enroll in a college that is a pre-law program. Now the programming has been installed at a very young age. You need to have a good job. That means in this case, in this example, we'll say it means you need to make a lot of money. And part of having a good job means there is a healthy salary attached to that job. So in our litigious example, you're going to, even in high school, of course, you're already feeling the pressure to get into a school that is a good pre-law school. So that means you're axe to the grindstone, making sure you're getting A's, making sure you are doing all the things to ensure that you can be admitted to such a college. And then you get into your college of choice, your pre-law school, whatever that is, and you're doing your thing and you begin to experience what it means to study law early in the process. And maybe this works for you, but on a soul level, on a level that really truly appeals to your higher self, you don't love practicing law. You're not that interested in learning about the nuance of law and you learn more about the industry of law and decide that there are things that are unfavorable about it, things that are in conflict with your values, the things that will make you happy. And now you have friction. Now we have a conundrum because you've been programmed that this is the right path and you're on that path and you are dutifully obeying that programming. However, when you really are quiet and listening to your soul, you get a different message. And the message is, I want to, whatever. We can pick another example that's somewhat dichotomized, polarized from this lawyer example. Uh, You want to be a guitarist, a drummer. You want to be a painter. Pick something artistic. This would be in conflict with our basic programming, which says that we have to have a job that earns a lot of money. And while there are certainly guitarists who can earn a lot of money, they're probably not super common. People tend to not go be guitarists because there's a lot of money to be made in guitaring, at least as I understand that industry. You would become a guitarist because you like to play guitar and If you're really passionate about it, then you become good at it. And then someone pays you to play guitar in a band or 
you get solo gigs or maybe you make music and you get paid for your music. So this is the point of friction. When you are still, when your the water is calm, and water is a metaphor for the subconscious, when the subconscious isn't telling you what to do, it's not aggravated, it's not bashing its watery waves against your shore with programming. <clears throat> Excuse me. When that happens, uh, or rather when it doesn't happen and the water is calm, the lake is still, and you listen, your soul tells you, I want to play guitar. And the resolution of that tension can be quite a challenge. Depending on what age you are and how individuated you are, it can result in you having some very heated discussions with your parents. Because if they still believe that you should be a lawyer, then when you tell them, I'm dropping out of law school and going to take guitar lessons, they may not be so happy. And this individuation process requires a lot of courage. It takes a lot of balls or ovaries to follow your soul. So hopefully all that's relatively clear. This is a pretty simple example it happens all the time. In fact, most people deal with this on some level in their lives. This friction between what they've been programmed to do or what society tells them to do and what they really actually want to do. And look, it's not easy. It's not as simple, I'll say, as just quitting law school and going to take guitar lessons. Uh, people have things like bills to pay and guitar lessons may not pay the bills immediately. Uh, people have children, they have relationships, uh, they have complications in those relationships. Maybe you have a partner who has programming and that partner's programming also goes against you taking your lessons or following your soul. So we can see that the friction will cause challenge in many areas of our lives. Now let's draw it into sport because it's the same principle played out in sport. And part of our myth in sport can be brought about also by our caregivers. Maybe it was brought about by our parents. Maybe it was in part constructed by the caregivers we had in elementary school otherwise known as our teachers. And one of the belief systems that was programmed to us in grade school, well, I'll give you a few simple examples and then we can take it to sport. One of them we were told was, vitamin D is good for you because you're a growing child and you need vitamin D. And the only place to get vitamin D is in homogenized pasteurized cow's milk. So go drink milk. That was one belief system we were programmed with. I'll even say brainwashed with. And this is total bullshit, by the way, just in case you were wondering. Another one, another good example was in the 80s, if you eat red meat, specifically steak, you will die of a heart attack tomorrow. Right? I've tested this, the presence of this belief system with a lot of my clients. And I often get big smiles when I bring these examples out. 
because people realize they were programmed with this exact line of rhetoric of bullshit, right? Now, just for the record, I'll say that if you eat lots of commercially raised, industrially farmed beef that's laden with hormones and antibiotics and fed grass pellets or worse, soy pellets, then yeah, over a long enough timeline, that'll cause most people some sort of health challenge. Will it kill you of a heart attack? I don't know. I can't say. There's a lot of factors that go into that. Is it healthy? I would argue not on the whole. Now, is it better than eating nothing? Well, maybe. So there's all those nuances. But if you're talking about eating grass-fed, truly grass-fed, that is, organic, locally raised beef, for most people, that's a healthy food I would offer. The question is, in what quantity? For some people, less will go a long way. And for some people, more is going to do better for them. I'm on that side of the scale for the record, but that's neither here nor there. Completely incidental. So another belief system we were given was in the 80s was that fat was bad. And if you ate fat, you became fat. And then we came up with the brilliant solution of Olestra. Olestra, in case you don't know, is a fake fat. And side note here, I'll just say that people who don't understand that fake foods aren't good for you and they go spelunking into the science to decide if you name it. It's all the same shit. Aspartame or NutraSweet or Olestra or uh, Splenda, all these garbage foods. These people who don't understand that these foods are bad for you and they want to find the science to prove that they are, they're missing the point. They're, They're completely missing the point. All we have to do is look at natural law and we need no look no further than this. Natural law tells us that the further we get from nature, the less healthy we are. This is not rocket science, people. This is proven. And you don't need a double-blind study to understand it. It's just the way nature works. You are subject to natural law because you are a human being. So is it better for you to eat white processed sugar or NutraSweet? Well, they're both bad choices. But I would offer that NutraSweet is further from nature. They're both refined foods. But NutraSweet was made in a lab. Refined white sugar was taken out of sugarcane and stripped down to an essence. Um, It was reduced. It's been refined is the best word. Relentlessly refined. Don't forget about the four white devils. White sugar, white cow dairy, especially homogenized pasteurized white cow dairy, which is by definition enzymatically dead and is a very low energy food. White flour and white refined salt. I had this discussion with several of my clients recently. Don't eat refined salt. Do not eat table salt. This is poison. It's garbage. It robs your body of other minerals. It causes mineral imbalance in your body. We came from the ocean. Natural law. We came from the ocean. When we left the ocean, we took a little ocean with us. There's nothing more natural than sea salt. Truly high quality, good sea salt. Do not eat refined table salt. 
toxic poison. Okay, I'll tell you how I really feel about it later. So, where was I? Got on a tangent there. Yes, belief systems that we were programmed with when we were kids. So we covered uh, getting vitamin E from milk. We covered red meat. Here's another one. Oh, and then fat. We covered that and fake sugar, right? Same idea between the two of those, fat and sugar. Uh, let's make a fake food that's better than the natural food. This is just people trying to biohack their way around nature and eat what they really want to eat. It's people sidestepping adult responsibility and not wanting to <clears throat> understand that when you eat too much freaking sugar, it's bad for you. And they're just trying to find a way to cheat that system. This is the mentality of a child. A child doesn't want to take responsibility for his or her choices. They want to blame stuff on other people or they want to rest the authority and responsibility in that of the parents. Being an adult is when you individuate and it's when you take responsibility for your actions. Clear? So, when we're talking about myth and the belief systems that program us, we have one really important one to consider. Well, two I'll offer that are directly related to movement. One is we were told in gym class, now this pertains to Americans primarily. I don't know if Europeans get the same brainwashing that we do. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I've only asked a few Europeans on this and they seem to largely agree. But if you're from some other part of the world, maybe you don't have this rhetoric uh, injected into your brain when you're a kid. I don't know. I can't speak for kids who grew up in New Zealand, for example. We were told that we stretch before exercise in order to prevent injury. And our little kid brains, by extension, then assumed that someone who is more flexible is less likely to be injured. And this is not true. This is inaccurate. This is incorrect. In fact, mobility, just like everything, exists on a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, we have stability of a joint or multiple joints. And on the polarized side of that spectrum, we have mobility of a joint, right? Flexibility normally pertaining to the length of muscles or the ability of a muscle to be stretchy and mobility normally applying to being applied to a joint. The description of the range of motion of a joint or the ease of range of motion of a joint and not just the ease, but also the total range, right? And we, by extension, assumed that someone who was more flexible or mobile, either one, was less likely to get injured. And this is not the case show me a really flexible runner and I'll show you a crappy runner, right? Running is a sport, as an example, that requires quite a bit of tensegrity in the system. It actually requires the body to behave like a spring. And if you're too flexible, especially in isolated specific joints, you'll get problems very quickly. In particular, if you're running on pavement with shoes that provide too much motion control and too much padding. This exacerbates the problem, right? So we stabilize the foot and we get 
increase mobility in joints up the chain, the hip or the knee or whatever. So that's one movement piece that is pretty garbage. Now here's another piece. And this pertains directly to cycling. And it's a poisonous mindset that has infiltrated many athletes, many cyclists. And it's really the source of a lot of misunderstanding about how endurance sports work, how energy systems are stimulated and trained. The idea is pretty simple. It's that in order to gain strength, you have to fail in the last rep of every set, right? So I'm talking about gym class. We probably all had gym class and we probably all did some strength exercises. And most of us, if not all of us, were told that how you gain strength is to fail on every set at the last rep of every set. So if you did four sets of 12 bicep curls on rep number 12, you had to hit muscle failure. You had to barely complete the rep or not complete the rep. And you did that on every set. So that means in 48 bicep curls, you failed four times at least. Now, think about that philosophically for a moment. When you're training, do you think it's better to fail all the time and train to fail regularly? Or would it be better from a psychological perspective to succeed when you're training? Would it be better to have success, experience success with your training? Let me put it another way in case that's not quite clear or landing. Let's think about our local climb that you go up all the time. And maybe you've been trying to set a new PR in there for the last season or two, or maybe you just recently set a new PR. Cool. And if you don't have a climb, maybe it's a Strava segment on a flat road, or maybe it's a sprint at the end of your group ride, right? So think about this segment or this climb for a moment and imagine that if we transition that same mentality to cycling failure at the end of the rep, that every time you tried to climb this hill, it was so steep that you had to get off and walk. That's failure in cycling, right? Or maybe put a little more broadly, a little more gently, would be the equivalent of you trying to set a new PR up a five minute climb about, right? Maybe your time, your best time ever was five minutes and one second. And you tried it once a week for an entire year. This is an implausible example, but just run with me on it. You do it 52 times in a year and every single time you fail to do ride a 501. You never hit 501 or faster. You're 503, 512, 521, 518. 509, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You are desperately trying to just break five minutes on this climb and you never do it. What would you conclude after 52 sessions? That wouldn't really be a positive experience most likely, right? Most of us are in sport, at least partially to make gains, to see improvement and going up a hill in five minutes and one second and then five minutes flat a couple weeks later is that progress. That's that sense of accomplishment that we crave. So, but for some reason in sport, specifically in the gym, that concept is reversed. And the only way to be better is to fail. That's interesting. And it also, to me, speaks to a myth that 
in sport, the people who have this perception come from a particular mindset. And the mindset is that everyone who practices this sport is actually a tiny speck of dust, insignificant, less than. They're not a masters, nor are they worthy of being in the sport. In fact, you could even describe them as LPSs, little pieces of shit. That's a reference from one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. It's called Everything Everywhere All at Once. It stars Michelle Yeoh. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Excellent film. And in the movie, part of the conundrum of the protagonists is that they feel like little pieces of shit. Insignificant specs. And this is the mentality of this type of thinking in sport, that you are an LPS, and the only way for you to get better is to pass through this wormhole or portal or gateway or doorway of pain and suffering, and you have to do it over and over again. And by extension, the more often we pass through this doorway of pain and suffering, the better we will be, and the more likely we will be worthy of being called not a piece of shit or good, or maybe even an expert, or maybe winning a bike race, or maybe having the respect of our other riders on on a ride, or our peer group, or our friends, or the people we race against. The only path to salvation is the worship of suffering, bow down to the altar of pain. This is another way to say no pain, no gain. It's the same belief system. And by extension, if you're not in pain, you are, I don't like this term very much, so I'll use it once and then be done with it to make the point. You are a pussy. It's not nice language for me. I have no problem with curse words, but there's some that don't feel right, and that's one of them. So this type of mentality really drives me a bit bonkers for a couple reasons. One, I will tell you that this is incorrect, even in the gym. It is correct if you want to specifically train hypertrophy and make muscles bigger and shred muscle fibers to the point where they actually have to grow and become bigger. So if you're trying to gain muscle size, specifically if you're targeting one muscle, not a muscle group even, one muscle, you can do it by achieving failure at the end of every rep of every set. Or, excuse me, I misspoke. Not every every rep. The last rep of every set. That's a sound tactic. But most of the people listening to this podcast, probably all of them, are not bodybuilders, nor do they really want increased muscle size. Maybe you do in your quads. And if so, then hypertrophy is probably something you should include in your strength and conditioning routine. Not with machines, though. You know how I feel about that. So... Okay, what I'm saying is there are many ways to gain strength in the gym without failing at the last rep of every set. There are all kinds of ways to do it. This is like when Ricky, Bobby's dad, told him, hell, I was probably high when I said that. You ain't first, you're last. You can be all kinds of other places. You can be second, you can be fourth. It's the same exact thing. There are lots of ways to gain strength in the gym without gaining muscle size and without failing on every, on the last rep of every set. Many ways. Just take my word for it. Uh, one example I'll give you just to illustrate the point. Try an extreme isometric lunge. See if you can hold a deep lunge with perfect form for five minutes straight without moving. 
try that a couple times and see how hard it is, one, and two, if you gain any strength. You will gain a form of strength if you do that. Is it the type of strength that bodybuilders want? Well, I don't know. I can't speak for them. Probably not because they're very focused on a, a very narrow range of what they consider to be useful strength. I, on the other hand, consider strength to be something that can be gained across many joint angles using many different muscle fibers and from many different, what am I trying to say here? Using many different methods. I'll leave it at that. Okay, cool. So here's the, the part that's important to grasp in terms of how this translates. If we take the mentality that the only way to be stronger is to fail on the final rep of every set, and we transition that over to cycling, and we're using a power meter, guess what you get? You get someone who rides at the top of their zone on every ride. And this is problematic. Also, it is incorrect. It is not the way to train on the bike because aerobic metabolism does not respond to load the way that muscle fibers do in the gym during strength and conditioning for many reasons. So when you go out for a two hour aerobic endurance ride and your zone two is 180 to 200 watts, you're not doing it better by riding at 199 watts the entire time. That would be riding at the top of the zone. Now, some people try to maximize things even more and they disregard zones. They know that it's supposed to be an aerobic endurance zone, uh, excuse me, an aerobic endurance ride, but instead of sticking to that idea, they just sort of turn it into a low level time trial. So now they're riding around at 239 watts for two hours. And what they've done is turn it into two hours of tempo, basically, hard tempo or medium tempo. And then when you give them tempo efforts, they turn them into thresholds. And they're not understanding the concept of sub-maximal efforts, sub-maximal training. So when you're prescribed, prescribed a two-hour aerobic endurance workout, there's a specific purpose to that workout. And it is to train the aerobic system. And it may be flaunting your fat max And we might play with substrates as a way to add load to that. We might play with cadence as a way to add load or add stress to that boring, non-maximal two hours at aerobic endurance ride. Or we may not. We may just say, this is the best way for you to spend your training time right now. And for someone who has a mentality that they have to maximize every pedal stroke in their cycling, because they believe that the only way to get better is to constantly hit the ceiling of any given zone or moment, which is the translation of the simple belief system that the only way to get stronger is to fail at the last rep of every set. When they take that mentality and they translate it over to cycling, what they get is someone who trains at the top of their zones all the time. And this is, this is incorrect. This is patently false. Cycling is an aerobic sport and it is an endurance sport. So by definition, if we consider the eight biomotor abilities, 
by definition, cycling's largest biomotor demand is endurance. It is an endurance sport. It is the foundation upon which all other abilities are made. And if you show up to the line with only wicked ass endurance and nothing else in your quiver, you're still going to do pretty good. Are you going to achieve your potential, your maximum potential? Probably not. Are you going to win the race? Well, I don't know. It depends on the race and who else shows up and how good you are. That's a meaningless question, but you could. I've seen it happen. I've seen people who have just focused on endurance for months of training and shown up and won an early season race. Now, maybe that person had particular abilities that allowed them to win in spite of the fact that their training was somewhat myopic. But my point is endurance training is the foundation of everything in sport for cycling. It's the base of the pyramid. It is the foundation of the skyscraper. It is the legs of the brontosaurus, whatever analogy you want to use, metaphor, you need to understand that without endurance, we have fuck all to play with in the actual moment of the race. This is a crucial concept. And this is one of the biggest problems with power meter culture. There's a poisonous power meter mentality in our sport right now, where people are completely disengaged from sensation and feeling during sport. And what's happening is they're reliant on external authority to dictate how good they are and how much value they have in the sport. And this is ass backwards. Bass backwards. This is incorrect. And it will lead to you being severely limited in your performance at best case scenario. Worst case scenario is you're fried all the time because you're training way too hard all the time. You don't ride around a threshold for five hours a week. This is not how pros train. It's not how real cyclists train. So if you're trying to convince yourself that you can go hard on Zwift three days a week and then go do group rides two days a week and then do threshold intervals on Sunday, well, you're in for a lesson, my friend. This is not how the human body works. This is way too much imbalance. This is way too much yang. Everything must have balance. And the balance in the sport of cycling is the yang aspect, which is intervals and sprints and threshold. Everything above threshold, super threshold work is all yang by definition. For some riders, sub threshold work can be yin, meaning it is restorative. Any activity that is yin is an activity that increases your energy, your chi, your life force after you're done with it. So you go do a half hour threshold. Are you, are you energized afterwards? Well, you might be high from the dopamine. Sure. That's your own internal pharmacy that gave you a little gift. People become addicted to this gift and it becomes very problematic. And when we have an addiction, we tend to justify our behavior. So this is one reason why people can get glued into this belief system. But you you don't, even though you might feel good after that half hour threshold, it doesn't mean that you are repleted. You are depleted. You have expended energy. Your body is weaker than it was when it started. By definition, that means it was a yang activity. Yang is depleting. Yang is dividing. Yang is doing. 
Gong is threshold. Sprints. VO2. Going hard. Smashing the watts. Watt bombs. For some riders, submaximal efforts can be yin. One of the tools I try to offer my clients is to harness more yin in their submaximal riding. And one of the ways I do that is on recovery days, I'll have them ride with their mouth closed. Their intensity is governed by how fast they can go with the mouth closed. Nasal breathing, 100% nasal breathing. And this is a beautiful way to govern intensity and also help their ride be more rejuvenative. There has to be balance in all things. This is also natural law. So if you're out there smashing all the watts all the time and going faster than ever and setting PRs, then that's great. Eventually, the pendulum has to swing the other way. This comes forth in the seasonality of training. This comes out in... letting go of maximal efforts for a period of time, at least on the bike. Now, maybe we still counterbalance that with harder strength training in the gym, assuming the athlete can do that, meaning they have the skill, they've been taught properly, and they can do it without injuring themselves. That's one creative way to keep people making gains without them making too many gains in the same area for too long. So, I invite you to think about your own belief systems. And I would offer one way to do this is to consider your own mentality. When you do a set of intervals, can you be satisfied with the efforts if you complete the last one and you're not completely smashed? There is such a thing. An obvious example of that is tempo. We can give people sub-maximal efforts, four by 10 minutes at tempo with a given cadence prescription. These are not efforts that are designed to smash you into oblivion. They're not intervals where you fail on the last rep of the set or even in the last minute of every rep. In fact, there's no point in that workout where you have failure at all. It's a tempo. Tempo means by definition sub-maximal not threshold. So when we get this down, we understand that a large component of training can and should be submaximal. This is normal. This is correct. Now, I'm not telling you you should never go hard. I'm not here to tell you that you shouldn't do maximal efforts. They absolutely have their place and a true athlete will sharpen their sword at the right moment. However, those moments are chosen carefully and this is the essence of sport. We are always managing our energy in life and in sport. And if you're leaking energy all over the place, meaning dropping watt bombs randomly everywhere, well, you're probably doing that in the rest of your life too. When we stay at center, we have the best chance to manage our energy and thus use it at the right moment. Whether that's at the end of a race or midway through the race when we follow the perfect attack or make the lead group during a crosswind section, or whether it is knowing the right moment to put effort forth towards your dream goal or objective in life and put even at times maximal effort. Studying for an exam, that might be an example. That's a time to put together 
some real effort to push to make sure that you are prepared for your exam. Just one idea. So I would invite you to think about your own mindset when you're doing intervals and when you're completing them. And one giveaway can be the pain face. When you're completing hard efforts, do you have a twisted, devilish pain face? If you're unable to make a really hard effort without completely twisting your face into a knot, that tells us that by definition, you're undergoing severe sympathetic stress. And I would offer that you might be trying a little too hard. Refinement of true effort normally means you can produce a maximal effort without going to the depths of your soul. Now, there are moments of exception for this. And every rule is eventually broken. So when someone's about to win a grand tour stage, or they think they might, they you might see the pain face come out. But at that level, it's very rare for athletes to hit this point of exertion. And a true professional knows that they can only go that deep a few times a year. Think about it for a moment. Do you want your best performances to be in training when you're doing the last rep of eight times two minutes or whatever intervals you're doing? Or would you prefer to save that moment where you reach down into your soul and find the last 12 watts to be on a day where it gives you a race win or maybe just a PR at your state time trial championships? Now, to me, a, a, true, a true competitor, a true racer will save those days for race day. That's when the beast comes out and you reach into your soul. And if we are living, this is the point I'm trying to make. If we're living under a belief system that the only way for us to be good enough, the only way for us to pass through the devil's anus of pain is to make that same effort every single day in training, you're fooling yourself. You are living under a false belief system because this is not the way human performance works. You can't go to 100% 98 times and then show up on race day and expect to do the same thing. You're going to be shattered. And don't argue with me on this. I've been coaching for 35 years. If you find resistance in your mind on this point, that's your ego telling me and telling you, well, but I'm different. And usually the ego builds a story like I'm not that talented perceiving talent to basically be limited to the world of VO2 and watts and threshold, which is also incorrect. There are many ways to have talent. But in this limited viewpoint, the ego will say, well, I don't have that many watts, or I'm a little bit chubbier than everyone else, or I weigh 176 pounds, so I can't climb, which is also incorrect, by the way. If you don't believe me, look up Miguel Indurain and ask yourself how many times he won the Tour de France and then check his weight. Being heavy does not mean you cannot climb. Drugs or no drugs, doesn't matter. So, when you have this belief system that the only way to be good enough, because you're not good enough, you don't have enough watts, you don't have enough threshold, you're a little pudgy, whatever your little 
rationalization is the only way to do that is to train harder than everyone else and do more hard efforts, you're fooling yourself. This is bullshit. This is the ego playing a trick on you. This is you justifying the belief system that was ingrained in your brain when you were in sixth grade. So I will invite you to take an honest look inside yourself and ask, how many times have I done this? How many times have I blindly turned myself inside out during intervals and then gotten to the race weekend and been smashed? How many times have I second guessed my own training in the winter when I should be doing more base building and more fundamentals, more making a broader base of the pyramid and instead gone on Zwift and hammered my brains out? And the more number of times you have done this, the more ingrained that belief system is. And the more that's an invitation for you to look at your own myth, your own story that you tell yourself. That was a story that was really primarily programmed by other people. And I'll ask you in closing, do you want to run a program that was installed by someone else on your hard drive? Or would you prefer to have direction over your own operating system? Now, I'm not here to tell you what to do. That's on you, man. But I will offer that for me, there's only one choice. And the choice is to install my own operating system, to run my own programs, or rather actually not any programs at all, to illuminate deeply into my own subconscious and understand the programs that are running and if necessary, assassinate them, expunge them, extricate them from my hard drive so that I can run with choice. I can examine in any given moment, why am I doing this? Why am I behaving this way? The first skill is to observe. First, we watch. And this is a skill developed in meditation. So the better you are at observing yourself in silence, the better you can be at observing yourself in motion, in action, in emotion. When you're around other people, when you're racing your bike, when you're driving to the airport, when you are in line at the grocery store, when you are getting gas at the gas station, and we have these interactions, these moments, these beautiful moments we get to share with other people where they throw you a curveball and you get flipped off or call the name or maybe you get a random hug who knows and the better you are at observing your behavior during these unpredictable moments of life the better you are at changing your own programming the better you are at making conscious choices about how you behave as opposed to unconscious choices clear good thanks for listening hope that was helpful. If you like that podcast, let me know. Give me, give me some love on the gram or something. I appreciate y'all. And oh, I just broke out a Texan y'all there. That was, I don't know where that came from. Some sort of deeply harnessed belief, no doubt. Some internal brainwashing. That's probably not true actually, but I do appreciate my audience and I wish you well. And now you have a little more insight as to what I mean when I ask you to 
ride consciously. That's what I got. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.